Welcome back to Pertaining to People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And for this episode, we thought we'd talk a little linguistics, a little history of language. But first, we have some exciting news in the world of anthropology and archaeology that we want to share with you guys. Yes. And that is that radiocarbon dating, which is really the backbone of a lot of archaeological research, we talked about it a little bit in our Origins of Anthropology Part 2 episode, and it's a technique of dating archaeological organic finds by using how fast carbon-14 decays over time. But basically, it's difficult to monitor through time because you need to examine how much radioactive carbon is in the atmosphere, and that alters a lot through time. So because of current anthropogenic causes, we have a lot more of this radioactive carbon in the atmosphere due to nuclear testing and the burning of fossil fuels. But for non-anthropogenic reasons, it's also changed through time. So we need to understand how much carbon is naturally in the atmosphere in order to correctly date certain organic materials. And we do this using something called calibration curves. Those have been changed a few times through history since the advent of radiocarbon dating in the 1950s. But as we continue to refine our knowledge and our information from carbon values, primarily from tree rings as well as stalactites and stalagmites, and ocean organic carbon amounts, we're able to look at all those factors together and then look at how carbon dating has changed through time. And we have new curves that are coming out for the world in the next few months, and they'll be published in the journal Radiocarbon. It's super exciting because we haven't had any new curves come out in a long time. And the one for the Northern Hemisphere will be Intcal 20. And a lot of archeologists have been tweeting like crazy about this new announcement. And some have been stating that perhaps they've been in isolation a little too long, but this is some of the most exciting <laughs> things that have happened in the last few years. Uh, and this is going to potentially revolutionize our understanding of history as we're able to refine and solidify our timelines with a lot more certainty. And it's even been able to push back the oldest human fossils that were found in Siberia with this new radiocarbon calibration. They've been determined to be about a thousand years younger than previously thought. So with this new calibration curve and retesting a lot of old samples, it could potentially really revolutionize our understanding of human history and potentially the times by hundreds or even thousands of years that we had previously assumed. So it's a pretty big deal and we're all very excited to see what we are able to learn from these new curves. Yeah, stoked. That's awesome. Sorry, did you explain how the calibration ties into it? Did I miss that? Yeah, it's basically like the amount of natural or background radioactive carbon-14 in the atmosphere changes over time. So it's not just a constant baseline amount. It's kind of like a sine wave. It waxes and wanes through time. So you kind of have to look at like how the amount has changed through time and then look at how your amount of the artifact you're dating relates to that background radiation. But basically, as we learn more and gather more sources, those curves become better refined through time. So like the statistical models used to actually determine the age, we're just improving those through time with every little bit that we learn. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's our very exciting news. Woo. <laughs> Archaeologists are such nerds. <laughs> 
But in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about linguistics and the history of language. And as I've mentioned many times, I also study linguistics in addition to archaeology. So I'm allowed to say how ridiculous it is in many ways. It's like logic and math, but for languages, it sucks sometimes. But it is important that we start with just like a couple definitions in case you don't know before we get into some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I had a joke. Hit us. You had I'm a ready. joke. <laughs> I have a joke to start this time. So the past, oh, <laughs> the past, present and future walk into a bar. It was tense. Oh, God. <laughs> that is so loosely related to the topic, but I'll take it. <laughs> It was the best one I found. All the other linguistics ones are, like, way too specific and would not have made any sense. (laughs) But, so, linguistics is the study of languages. And I just wanted to state, if you're in linguistics, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a translator. Like, all linguists don't necessarily speak the languages they study. And then, within linguistics, there's kind of five main areas of study. Phonetics, phonology, morphology, syntax, and semantics. Well, maybe talk about the definitions of these as they come up, but just very quickly, phonetics is the study of the physical properties of speech. So like how we formulate speech and then produce it and then hear and understand it. Phonology is associated with phonetics. They tie in very closely and it's specifically the way sounds function within a language. So an example would be minimal pairs, which are words that have the same sounds except for one, which completely changes the meaning of a word. So door and four are examples of that. So Kelsey, we were talking very quickly about phonemes before this. A phoneme would be like the d versus the f sound. And that completely changes what those words mean. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So morphology is the study of words, how they're formed and their relationships to one another in the same language. And syntax, which I think we're going to talk about for sure. It's talking about the rules surrounding the structures of sentences. So it's like how you put together a sentence. And then the last one is semantics, which is the philosophical study of meaning in a language. Okay. In language, also in programming language, and in formal logic and semiotics. So linguistics actually ties in a lot into coding and computation, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because it is a form of a language coding is. Those are the most basic, and then we can get into any other definitions that we need to during this. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, I did want to talk about the one other thing. So historical linguistics is the study of the history and development of language. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, like the bulk of what we're going to be talking about. And then ethnolinguistics, it's a form of anthropological linguistics that examines relationships between language and culture. And then sociolinguistics, it studies that relationship between language and social relations. So for example, how class, age, gender, and ethnicity can influence the choice of words of a, a person speaks. So an example of that would be like African-American vernacular English, where they speak in a particular way because that is part of their social relations and culture. All right, so let's get into the history of language. So as I mentioned in the (laughs) way back in episode one, if you can think back, it feels like it's been years since that time. because of quarantine. (laughs) Way back in episode one, I mentioned that there are different theories about who the first homo ancestor was that actually spoke language as we sort of know it. And the main (laughs) theories are often around homo habilis or Neanderthals. So I know you also wanted to talk about this, Kelsey. 
but I'm just going to talk very quickly about Michael C. Corbellis, who is a gentleman who actually has a TED Talk that you can listen to, which is pretty interesting. I do wonder a little bit if this is actually a widely accepted theory or just the one that got the most media attention. But I don't know if you remember, also in that first episode, I mentioned that hominins were predominantly right-handed by two million years ago and was very confused Mm -hmm. by that theory. I now have an explanation. So according to Corbalis, right-handedness might have arisen because of an association between manual gestures, like me, who is a very strong hand talker, And so between manual gestures and vocalization in the evolution of language. So he posits that language evolved from manual gestures, like even sign language is speaking with manual gestures, and slowly incorporating vocalization. So essentially his idea is that the growth of the Broca's area in the brain, which is associated with language, in human ancestors, and especially the enlargement of the left side of it in Homo habilis, is proof for the link between manual movements and vocalization because of the predominant right-handedness of humans. So as I said, yeah, I'm not sure how strong this theory is, but after all, like, think about how much of our understanding is about everything other than speech. It's about gestures, it's about physical stance, it's about facial expressions. It's not necessarily just the words coming out of our mouths. Yeah, I actually came across some of the same information on the gestural theory, it's called. Basically Mm -hmm. the idea, yeah, that language evolved from gestures, and it was looking at all the similarities of how non-human primates and humans use gestures for communication. Mm -hmm. So, One interesting fact was that humans and chimpanzees share the exact same begging posture, quote-unquote, so with hands outstretched and then palms open to show someone that they're asking for what they have. And that seems to be an inherent primate behavior, but differs significantly by species. So gorillas, for example, will communicate by banging on their chest. And even without having seen another gorilla do that, they'll instinctively do it as a form of communication. The same with chimpanzees' begging posture. But humans are pretty unique in their ability to recognize facial communication. And I think with what you were talking about with the left and right cortex of the brains, humans, like you were saying, tend to use more of the left side of their brain for understanding communication and So there was a functional MRI study that looked at humans and it was looking at homologous areas in the monkey mirror neuron system in the inferior frontal cortex. So that's right near Broca's area in your brain. And that's Mm -hmm. like you were saying, one of the language areas. And mirror neurons actually allow for imitation learning and action understanding. So basically you copying someone else's behavior, but then learning from that behavior. So studies of humans gesturing words to each other, such as using charades, basically while they're hooked up to this function MRI, show that the mirror neuron system of the observer reflects the exact same pattern of the activity in the brain of the sender. So that's hypothesized as one of the reasons for us actually evolving communication is this mirror neuron. We're basically seeing others do these symbols and then that recognition of that connection to that gesture to a component like language or a sound is common in both humans and chimpanzees. So it at least evolved prior to our divergence from each other as species. Cool. And then, yeah, sorry, this was just one thing (laughs) about the sides of the brain. If you look Mm -hmm. at endocasts, which are like the inside of a brain case that's fossilized, you can kind of see how the brain's evolved over time. In the frontal lobe, as Jill was mentioning, we examined Broca's area, and it seems to occupy in most humans the left half of the human brain more than the right. But if you're left-handed, it's the opposite. So it's actually 
primarily done in the right-hand side of your brain. So if humans can be left-handed or right-handed, but it's not true for chimpanzees. So even if a chimpanzee is left-handed, the language, the Broca's area, is still found primarily better developed in the left-hand side of the brain. So humans seem to be the only species that actually have divergence in their primary brain language reasoning area, this Broca's area, that differs on lobe side based on your handedness. Yeah, I saw that too. And then ours has swelled over time. That's so interesting. That also answers my question from the first episode about whether primates, uh, other primates are, also have like a dominant hand, which that, it makes sense that they do, but <laughs> I didn't know. Yes, they do, but it, I guess, doesn't impact their language. But ours is apparently 3.6 times larger than chimpanzees, and it can diverge based on mm. hand dominance. I think what I generally saw is that most other primates don't actually have it's pretty 50 50 i don't know it is very interesting though i think i saw like 90 percent of humans are right-handed which i don't think is completely true and i think an important part of this that i don't know if anybody is taking into account is there was a large period of time in schools where people were literally taught to be right-handed like Mm -hmm. if somebody was left-handed in our grandparents generation for example they would literally get like hit on the hand with a ruler to write with their right hand instead so i do wonder how much that affects some of this as well yeah i feel like those kinds of studies could be done with like focus group you know Mm -hmm. like maybe just toddlers and you look at what hand they're using yeah but yeah i've heard the like 90 10 figures too before yeah i wonder how trying to train someone at a young age to not use their dominant hand might influence something like language or cognitive development if you're trying to develop the opposite temporal lobe than what you're naturally intrinsically inclined to do, would that influence then your ability to cognitively understand language or gestures in the same way as if you could develop that dominant side from the start? It's interesting that humans are the only primate species that have been examined that actually show those dominant characteristics of temporal lobes. And even how we have like anecdotal evidence of, you know, people being more creative if they're left-handed and more analytical if they're right-handed and so on, it's Really interesting that other primates don't exhibit those same behaviors. I wonder if that did have an important role to play in our evolution of language and culture and all these unique human characteristics. Yeah. And with that too, like I also wonder about people who speak sign language. Like that would be very interesting to see. Well, with the gesture hypothesis, like I remember even in French class in elementary school, when we were learning French, we learned every word in association with a hand gesture. And it... Apparently, the, you know, teaching science at the time, the pedagogy was that this would help cement in young minds these words if you did a hand gesture associated with it. And even now I'm trying to sort of refresh my French and relearn it for myself. And I find myself just intrinsically doing the same hand motions that I learned as a little kid with, okay, this is behind, this is in front, this is on top, this is away. Like I I just am finding myself naturally doing those same sort of hand motions along with it. So I do think that there's, I feel anyways, a connection between those gestures and the movement and then the actual language and understanding component of it. That's so interesting. There's also another theory in linguistics, which I forget the name of, of course, but it's surrounding the association between reading like mouth movements and how well we understand what somebody is saying. Yeah, I think one of the theories for how humans actually learned or how language evolved was through reading lips and then mimicking sounds by children, basically. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've had this in some of my linguistics class where a prof will play, for example, 
And this is really important, especially with like language learning and like a non-native language where they'll play a sound. And if they're playing it without a video, for example, it's way harder to understand what they're saying versus if they're playing Mm -hmm. it, you're seeing a video of somebody saying those words. And it applies as well to a certain extent if they're playing a video of someone speaking a word, but you can't hear the word itself. A surprising amount of us are actually pretty good at reading lips even if you think you aren't, even if you're, you know, have a hearing impairment. It's very interesting. Yeah. So one of the theories that I read for why language may have evolved in early primates was called the put down the baby hypothesis. And it was basically that as we started to evolve to no longer have furry bodies, babies and young infants couldn't hold onto their mother's backs during forging. So that required mothers to put the baby down. But mothers needed a way to reassure their babies that they weren't being abandoned. So they began using a combination of expressions and emotional contact calls and even laughter in order to ease babies. And then that basically, the theory goes that these contact calls between mothers and offspring originated so that they can communicate even without visual lines of contact. And that way levels of distress could be communicated. So from there, small children would produce low level sounds in order to express desire to interact with an object. So even today, toddlers will do this. They'll maybe make, you know, grunting sound saying like, hey, can I have this? Can I use it? And then the mother would then respond with a low level sound for an approval or a high level sound for disapproval. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, uh-uh, don't touch that poison ivy, bad. <laughs> and then over mm-hmm. time, this sort of led to unique calls, phonemes, that became associated with certain objects. And then children, as they grew up, began to mimic their parents' lip movement to make calls that were associated with objects. And then as they became ingrained in their long-term memory, children were able to learn new calls through mimicry, and thereby, through lip reading, they were able to produce a sequence of calls, and then eventually multisyllabic words then increased and became integrated, and vocabulary was able to become developed, basically. So one of the hypotheses was for this was because of our lack of fur and our need to still maintain contact with infants due to this. That's so interesting. So there's two things that I wonder if they play into this. One of these is that we often teach babies, I think this has been a fad recently, but we often teach babies sign language before they actually learn how to speak. That's been a thing Uh to communicate. And so I wonder if that's maybe, yeah, it's like a kind of case study about us too, where, you know, using those manual gestures first is maybe a step towards producing the actual sounds with our mouths. Yeah, maybe that's like a tie to our earlier, like, linguistic evolution. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I wonder. And then the other thing that this made me think of is with alloparenting. So alloparenting is referring to people acting as parents that aren't their biological parents, but within, like, a community, for example. And so there is this theory about babies that the quote-unquote happier babies that are better at like smiling and cooing and stuff like that they have a better chance of survival with alloparenting because more parents that are not their biological parents will be willing to take care of them and care for them if they're really cute and do the the things that we see of as as being cute with auditory like cooing and smiling and those sort of gestures. So just what you were most recently talking about, Kelsey, made me think of that because I wonder if that plays into this somehow as well. Yeah, definitely. That would make sense having other adults be able to communicate with the child and teach them. Because there was... Yeah. I had read something about how trust was a really important component in the evolution of language, because basically a lot of animals, when they make natural sounds, 
it's not something they can just fake. Like a cat purring, it can't make that sound when it's not content. Like it's not a sound that it could fake. But something like, so yeah, animal vocal signals are always intrinsically reliable. Whereas sounds primates make, we can lie and we can create imitation sounds and we're pretty good at it. So similarly to primates, our social intelligence is pretty Machiavellian, which means we're pretty self-serving and unconstrained by moral guides. So we can deceive one another. So if that's true, language naturally wouldn't have developed because it creates lying. It creates this like false idea. But basically, if you end up having to pay attention to harder to fake clues, like really subtle facial expressions or those sort of ideas, that allows you to communicate better. Basically, why would language evolve if we can lie to each other? But it's the whole idea of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, is that once Mm -hmm. primates learned that they could trust others, that language began to evolve. And they think that trust sort of started between mothers or parents and offspring, and then eventually led to offspring and other adults within the community. So offspring started to learn that they could trust their own parents, and then by extension could trust other adults. And then that was one of the hypotheses that also led to language evolution through time, was because of being able to trust what the other person was saying. Like, if I don't lie to you, you won't lie to me. But that takes, I think, a long time to evolve. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about this topic is, like, how purely based on the fact that we have to make so many assumptions. Yeah. There can be so many theories about how how it developed, how it evolved. And also, like... The amount of theories that exist kind of, I think, reflect that, like, post-processual logic stance of, like, if it's possible, we should talk about it. Yeah. I think maybe what you're getting at is, because a lot of this is also sort of psycholinguistics. So it's the association Mm -hmm. between, yeah, like, psychology and linguistics. And it's really, really hard because we don't completely understand the brain at all like we're not even close to fully understanding the brain and so trying to understand people's reasoning and thinking but then also the other side of this of which portions of the brain are associated with language for example and we're like we're starting to understand that more with mris and everything but it is really hard to know like what areas of the brain are actually associated with language for example and understanding language and so it is really hard to trace this like that's why so many different theories pop up yeah well, something interesting, actually. So I found this article by Shunman called Evolution of Brain and Language. He's discussing the study of the evolution of language itself and how, first of all, it needs to be super interdisciplinary because there's so many different factors that play into how language could have evolved, but also why there's so many theories because he talks about three issues that you could take different stances on and then the variety of stances you could take like on a gradient of two extreme ends to like more central like most theories but the first thing he talked about which we kind of also talked about was shared versus unique distinctions in language like comparing humans to other animals And this also, he was saying that it's not just things we do that are the same, but the meaning behind it. So just because another animal does a similar gesture doesn't mean the meaning is the same. And trying to figure out what meaning each animal has for the same thing or whether they have meaning behind it at all. And then the second was the evolution of language being sudden, like maybe a mutation that occurred or gradual 
mm-hmm. over a longer period of time. So you could take different stances on that. And then also whether the function of language has stayed the same over time or if it was initially an adaptation we had for another purpose and now we use it in a different way, which would make it a lot more complicated to understand how language developed. Yeah. So I found that kind of interesting for explaining why there's so many assumptions we have to make when we're doing this kind of study. I just really wanted to just speak to two things that you talked about, Kelsey. So just on the note of that theory about imitation, I do wonder about that one because there are other animals that do imitation, like birds especially do a lot of imitation. Yeah, there's actually this Dan Mueller had some interesting, albeit relatively naive and kind of irrelevant theories about language. But one of them was the bow wow or cockatoo theory that stated that language evolved to actually imitate bird sounds. So that potentially humans were (laughs) imitating the sounds birds were making. And that uh, he had some pretty interesting theories, though, too. Another one was the poo-poo theory. That our first words were emotional interjections and exclamations triggered by pain, pleasure, and surprise. But I read somewhere else that that one basically was being critiqued because in chimpanzees, that section of the brain that allows you to say, like, just make a sound when you're in pain or pleasure or surprise or something like that, for chimpanzees is located in an emotional control center of the brain. But for humans, it's completely separate. So we can produce sounds and create language and communicate without having any interaction with emotional, like, due to emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Another of these theories was the ding-dong theory and uh, the yee-hee-ho theory that claims that language emerged through rhythmic labor. So basically attempts to synchronize muscular effort. So you saying, like, heave and ho to accomplish tasks that basically led to the emergence of language. I don't know how true, like, just like Lulu was talking about, there's a lot of theories. (laughs) I'm going to give E for effort to a lot of those theories, but I have a very hard time seeing the (laughs) value in that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Your thing about the emotional center versus the, was it language center? Yeah. Anyway, that reminds me of in introduction to social and cultural anthropology, we were talking about the few kids that we have found that were quote unquote wild and that had like no connection to other humans and they grew up that way. A lot of them didn't actually emote the same way we do and they didn't have like that happiness or, or anger emotion display and they could not speak. And a lot of them, like, once you're past a certain age, you you won't be able to learn to speak. Yeah. Which is also interesting to me. I've seen that a lot as well. It is very interesting. And I think it, I wonder how much it ties into culture because the theories surrounding culture are that it is learned and a lot of that is through imitation and, and distec- direct stimulation from... Yeah, exposure, exactly. Direct stimulation from other people. And so, I, like, I wonder how much language is like that. Where if you're not, well, and what you said too, Kelsey, about non-human primates having reactions and they would just do those things without having learned them. Manual gestures, for example, all language is learned. You don't pop out and start talking. We (laughs) learn language from having our parents talk to us. Exactly along what you're saying, Lulu, where these kids, it's been shown with these kids that haven't been cared for, haven't been talked to. And after you get past a certain age you can't really learn to speak very well at all Mm. but those manual gestures 
I really would wonder, like, you should never do this because this is so morally wrong, but I would really wonder if you only used manual and facial and physical stance with a child and never spoke to them, how they would learn to communicate. But I mean, deaf children. Deaf children. No, totally. But you're still teaching them a language, right? True. Most of the time. Like, they're going to learn sign language. So I wonder if you don't teach them language, but they're only getting that physical side of it. I would wonder. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way to do this, and it is so morally wrong. But I do really wonder what would happen. I think yeah. we could learn a lot from that. Well, like Coco the Grella, they were able to teach sign language and could effectively communicate. But sort of yeah. like, you know, sign language, we can communicate just as many complex ideas with this gesture. So it's interesting why we ever sort of evolved out of using the gestures to communicate. One of the hypotheses I've read was that as we began to develop tools and use them more frequently, we then had needed our hands for other purposes. So mm-hmm. language was then potentially evolved because that way you don't need to use your hands basically to communicate. You didn't need the gesture. And what was important with language too is if you were trying to demonstrate something to someone else, like teach someone how to make a tool or how to cook a food or how to forage a certain, any sort of survival action, you would need to actually show them using gestures to demonstrate it, right? But with language, you could explain to someone without being in a visual line of sight for communication. So you could basically, it allowed for that communication to evolve and free up your hands and free up your eyes, right? Like it's a whole new method of communicating. That kind of reminds me of the theories for why we are bipedal, because there's some that say that we needed two of our hands so we stood up mm-hmm. they all sort of tie in and i saw that like i saw that one too kelsey and this sort of ties into when did we actually start to when did human ancestors actually start to speak that whole question some believe it was homo habilis some believe it was homo neanderthalensis like that were the actual first ones to speak but then i read another one that was saying that it was like modern humans that were the first ones and it was part of their spread out of africa and to like take over homer neanderthalensis it was because they could speak that they were able to do all that and then continue to where we are today but that seems a little bit anthropocentric like to an extent like (laughs) you know what i mean like it seems a little bit like no but homo sapiens were the best and like that was the reason that they survived is because they could speak. Mm-hmm. And I have found way more that supports that it was earlier and it was Homo neanderthalensis or Homo habilis that could actually speak first. So, Yeah, I've seen a few conflicting theories, but most seem to put that language evolved between 200,000 and 60,000 years ago. So you kind of have a 130,000 year window to play with. So that's about 5,000 yeah. or 6,000 generations. So it definitely doesn't seem to have happened overnight, but that's still relatively fast as compared to something like geologic epochs in time. And one pretty interesting factoid that I found was that that's the same approximate amount of time that Nilsson and Pelger in 1994 hypothesized for the time it would take for the vertebrate eyeball to have evolved from a single cell. So basically we evolved eyeballs out of a single cell in the same time frame that it would have taken for language to evolve. But yeah, we were bipedal by, what, 3.5 million years ago? It's just yeah. harder, I think, to study this language acquisition because we don't have those same fossilized remnants. Like, looking at it from the archaeological record, you can't study language necessarily based on a fossil, right? Like, all you really have yeah. is mm-hmm. those 
brain endocasts, the inside of the brain to look at, but that doesn't near show the complexity of the human brain or even begin to demonstrate it. And the only other thing we have is the hyoid bone. And I think the reasoning for why they thought Neanderthals didn't develop speech was that they, for the longest time, scientists believed that Neanderthals didn't have a hyoid bone just because it's the only bone in the human body that's not connected to any other bones, but it's really important for the positioning of the tongue and therefore for speech. So it wasn't until 1989 that the first Neanderthal hyoid bone was actually found. So that I think started to revolutionize ideas about Neanderthal speech, but that, I mean, that's a pretty recent discovery, you know, only 30 years ago. So I don't think that science has really caught up to those understandings of Neanderthal speech with like the relation to the hyoid bone and the development of Broca's areas and these other evolutionary necessities that we actually need to have speech. Definitely. And what you're saying about how it is so difficult to really theorize about a lot of this stuff, that all ties into those different areas of, of linguistics. Because language as we have it today, they have so many different interconnect. like there's so many different interconnecting parts. Like if you stop and think about, this is why I love linguistics, because if you stop for a second and think about how you speak, it is mind blowing to think about all of the different interconnecting parts. So with the phonetics about how we're actually producing language and hearing it and translating it and understanding it, that's all the stuff that's sort of developing because we have to have so you know your lungs are producing the air most sounds that we make in English at least are called egressive sounds so it's by pushing out air that we make these sounds and so just think about how many things are coming in to make that happen so you need to have the lungs that are pushing out the air, the trachea is involved in this as well as the air is passing through it. And then each sound that you make, it's being produced by doing something different with your mouth. And so there's sounds that are more nasalized where you're pushing air out of your nose. So like M's and N's, that's a whole other thing. Each sound that you're making, it's produced by putting your tongue at a different spot in your mouth. And that can be the tip of your tongue or the back of your tongue. It can stops that are things like stops or plosives like those sounds are all like it's by stopping the air so there's so many different parts that go into this and then like the brain and understanding everything there's so many different parts that go into it and not to even to mention putting together sentences and like <laughs> different words and the meanings for all of them like there's so much that goes into language it's so hard to understand how that started and as you're saying, if you just have a brain cast <laughs> to figure <laughs> yeah, out where... You're not going to have the preservation of the hypoglossal nerve and the larynx and all these muscular exactly. systems that are so important for producing speech. Yeah, it's really hard to study. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I uh, had read something about how like the importance of the larynx and the position of it is super important to the development of speech. So basically the idea that Uh, the larynx in humans is a lot lower. So basically the larynx is like your voice box. And in in humans, it's positioned a lot lower than in a lot of other species. This isn't something that's unique to humans. A lot of other animals that emit loud calls also have a lowered larynx. So goats with their baas and dogs with their barks and pigs, uh, they also have lowered larynx. But what's unique about ours, it's that the hyoid bone is also lower. So that means our tongue's not horizontal. We have evolved to have a permanently lower laryngeal hyoidal descent. 
But actually, in human babies, as they're born, the larynx is a lot higher up in the nasal cavity, and it sort of acts like a snorkel. So that's why babies can actually breathe and drink at the same time. But at around three months of age, their larynx drops lower in the throat. And that evolutionarily is a bit of a disadvantage because it makes choking easier. But oh, absolutely. It is the dumbest evolutionary step in But in apparently it's ways. what makes speech it's what makes speech possible, right? Yes. So yeah. yeah, so speech must have had a huge evolutionary benefit in order for that to happen if it increases your risk of choking, right? So mm-hmm. and then yeah, even male larynx they drop again in humans during puberty, which makes their voices even deeper and lower. But yeah, apparently no other animals have larynx as low as ours and therefore can't produce sounds as complex as us. Even chimpanzees, their high bones too high to do anything but really grunt and hoot and make the sounds that they naturally make. So it seems yeah. like for the evolution of language, it seems to be a bit evolutionary and cultural. I was kind of thinking of it like a computer analogy. It's kind of like a combination of both where we needed this like evolutionary quote unquote hardware, like all of these spots in place. We needed our larynx to have developed lower. We need our hyoid bone to be in the right place. We needed Broca's area to have developed into that complex brain matter to actually understand and then be aware of language. But then having that hardware, those evolutionary parts of our body developed that allowed us to actually download quote unquote the software so that we could actually learn language and effectively use it within our social systems and then develop culture based on that basically but i kind of think we needed we couldn't have one without the other they both kind of were interplaying in our development of language through time if that makes sense yeah it's very true I will just clarify very quickly with the larynx moving lower over time. The important part of this is the actually the epiglottis, which is like a little flap. And so that is the one that because the larynx is under like lower than that, the epiglottis, when you're swallowing versus when you're speaking, the epiglottis will sort of like plop down and it'll stop things from going into your lungs, for example. And so that's why sometimes if you take a sip of water, and then you breathe in, that's why you get that choking feeling because that epiglottis wasn't quite in the spot that it needed to be. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, and that's like muscular tissue, right? So that wouldn't preserve also? No, no. Okay. Cool. So yeah. That's a fun What's word. About, um... <laughs> yeah. This is the stuff I nerd out about. Yes. Talking about like us being able to produce more sounds than other animals. I started thinking, like, what's the fewest number of sounds that you would need for a language? And apparently the Piraha language of Papua New Guinea only has 12 letters and 11 phonemes. And that's their whole language. Oh. So that's like 11 distinct sounds. Yeah. And they can still communicate the same complex ideas. Oh, in English, we have 44. Yeah. So that's a big difference. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool when you look into the most common sounds across languages and what they actually are. And there are certain sounds that are easier to produce. And so, as I was saying, like, egressive, when the air is coming out compared to when it is going in, are way Mm -hmm. easier to produce than ingressive sounds is when the air is going in. And so an example, like, we have very few ingressive sounds in English, but an example would be, like, sometimes when you're upset or worried, you'll be like, (gasps) and kind of make that sound. That is ingressive, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other languages that use way more of those. And then there's languages that use, for example, clicks like Bantu that we maybe will talk about later. And it's really interesting because that's the other thing is that not only 
is the evolution of language and the beginnings of it so so interesting but then after that it branched off into all of these different language families and then those different language families branched off into all of these different languages and it's honestly very very sad that there's being that there's this cultural and language genocide that is happening where English is becoming so much more spoken throughout the world and we're losing some of these languages but there's also been a lot of movements to really preserve those and keep teaching them and stuff like that but it's sad because these amazingly diverse languages are so so interesting and looking at like historical linguistics is so interesting looking at the history of how those languages have changed over time and through doing Mm -hmm. that and through the comparison of that you can find out which ones are related which ones probably came from a common ancestor and you can find out a lot about also where people moved throughout the land for example you can find a lot of that out by comparing different languages in different areas and how they have changed throughout time it's just it's very very cool it's language is a cool cool thing it it is isn't it using like how many similar sounds and similar words in languages that exist? Aren't they able to determine approximately how long ago they diverged from each other? Isn't that a study in linguistics? Yeah, it is. So that one's a little bit debated. It's pretty cool, honestly. So there is there's this theory that that language sounds change at, at regular sort of intervals, through, like almost like radiocarbon dating, actually, that change happens sort of regularly over time and that you can compute that. But that is pretty disputed. It is questionable if that is actually true and that you can really base things on those because they're kind of arbitrary, these dates. But they still are fairly accurate and fairly true. It makes sense that that would be really highly debated, though, because I would think language wouldn't change at a constant rate, right? Like, if something significant happened, like large climate change, or even in modern English with something like the invention of the internet, like, how much did that change our vernacular and our speech? Like, that would have had a huge sort of jump in language as compared to that progressive slow change it's sort of maybe like that hypothesis of like continuous change or the step hypothesis of big changes that happen at a constant rate over time yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. so this is actually a good way to segue into talking about the bantu migration this is only something i know about because i wrote a paper on it but so the bantu migration is a good example of cross-disciplinary approach coming together with the use of linguistics and archaeology and genetics to understand the movement of a people. So this is not talking about how language actually evolved, but it's talking about the different branches of language and them developing and becoming differentiated. There's a difference between dialects and languages. So British English versus American or Canadian English, those would be considered different dialects. And even within Canada, if you're on the West Coast versus the East Coast, you'll hear different dialects of Canadian English. And people are a little bit weird about how you distinguish between a different language or a different dialect, but usually languages are mutually unintelligible. So if you speak one language to somebody, they can't understand you. But if you're just speaking different dialects of the same language, usually you can understand each other. And then as they as those dialects grow further and further apart, like this is just evolution pretty much. Like as dialects grow further and further apart, then they'll become different languages, like being in different contexts and then different words popping up. But with borrowing, so if two languages come into contact, then you get borrowing between them and then they can become more alike. And that's kind of like, yeah, divergent versus convergent hypothesis, I guess. And then so cognates are words that languages share. 
and so they therefore have a common origin. And that can either be through borrowing or because they have a common ancestor. And then the main methods in historical linguistics used for reconstruction are lexicostatistics and glottochronology. So glottochronology is that thing that you were talking about, Kelsey, where it's that it assumes that that change happens at a constant rate in languages, and then you can use that to determine the amount of time that passed, but it's largely, as I said, largely contested. And then lexicostatistics it uses like a comparison of cognates, so those words that are the same in different languages, to determine the relatedness between them. And then you can build family trees with them. So the group of Bantu languages, they're languages that have cliques in them. And the Bantu expansion refers to the movement of those people across Africa. And it happened really, really quickly. Like, they spread from westernmost Cameroon, sort of where, you know where Africa goes in a little bit? So kind of where that little in bit is? Like, mm-hmm. from there all the way to the south of Africa in about 200 years. So what a lot of this research has been focused on is how that happened. If it was through just the language, like, people meeting and then that language being passed on and then, like, moved down or if it was actually migration of people, so people actually moving and spreading down. And the generally accepted theory at this point is that it was migration and they spread all the way down, but then they see the borrowing of cliques in other languages as well. And it was by using genetics and archeology span and, and linguistics that they could sort of understand this. And so some of the research around this, just to sort of explain what maybe happens in linguistic research for people that don't know is so Boston uses the words and things method and stresses how important it is to be aware of inconsistencies and he focused particularly on pottery making words because that's believed to be a very important part of Bantu culture is these words based on pottery he looked at those words surrounding potteries he used the words and things method which it's founded on the basic idea that a community's culture is reflected in its language and so each major domains of human activity have an appropriate vocabulary and so therefore the verbs surrounding a type of activity are very important to the language i don't know if i can explain this well enough in the amount of time that i have so I'm just going to say, based on linguistics and archaeology and genetics, the general understanding is that it was migration and not just the spreading of the language, and that they managed to spread, like, so far in such little time. It's a very cool, like, just look into it, uh, Bantu expansion. It's very cool to see how this language, especially such an interesting language, I will post also a little link to a clip where they're speaking a language in the Bantu family. It's so cool. It's very hard. You should try it because it's very hard to do yourself if you don't speak a click language. It's just a very cool example of how language can spread. Was there another example you want to talk about, Lulu? Yeah, well, this is an example of how they used archaeology to kind of talk about language, but it's an interesting one because it doesn't really have anything to do with biology. So they found these beads at Blombo's Cave in South Africa, which is a really important cave for many prehistoric archaeological finds. So it's famous for like rock art and a number of tools that have been found there. But these shell beads that were found there by Christopher Henschelwood and Francesco D'Erco and their archaeological team were determined to be from the Middle Stone Age, 
in Africa. And because they had symbols on them, they determined that the people that had made them had fully syntactic language. So as Jill was talking about, like the fully structured sentences, and these beads were dated to 75,000 years ago, and they based this completely on this idea of symbolic meaning. So they, what they argued was that an understanding of meaning connects to a complex language because you can't express meaning without language. Now, this article I found by Botha stated that this is an interesting theory, but with theories like this, where you have this idea that symbolic meaning connects to language, you also need to say specifically what the meaning of the the thing you found could be. And they couldn't really do this because we don't have a lot of information about the culture of the area during that time or just cultures in South Africa in general. Apparently there's not a lot of research into it. And I found this interesting because it really connects the interdisciplinary aspects of archaeology and anthropology and how important it is to not only look at small aspects of what we've been finding, but also connect it to that cultural anthropology and that ethnography and try to see if there is a connection between symbols that we understand now and maybe symbols of the past. But it also connects to like a wider theory of personal ornamentation as a universal identifier of symbolic understanding and language, which is like another way other than biology and linguistic theory that archaeologists are trying to understand the evolution of language. Cool. And that look into the symbolic meaning and how how much languages especially in the past were based in symbolism versus words like as we use them is really interesting and another example of figuring that out would be in the Rosetta Stone and the Indus language but we don't have enough time to go into those so I think we'll do another episode about the Rosetta Stone and do sort of like a deep dive into it because it's really cool it's one of those earlier examples of both I mean, as we were talking about stealing things <laughs> and early quote unquote anthropology and archaeology. But then it's also an early example of deciphering a language. And it was a huge breakthrough because we could actually understand hieroglyphs after this. And yeah. Yeah. But we'll I, talk about that in another episode. I think the idea of like symbolism in relation to cognitive thought, like and language, can other primates produce symbolic thought and abstract thought? And I think that's like one of the debates with Neanderthal language also, whether or not they had symbolic mm. thought and whether they had developed language. It's a really interesting thing to consider if other you know, if language is necessary for us to be able to have abstract thoughts and communicate them or whether other animals do have these same abstract thoughts but just can't communicate them as effectively with us interesting thing to think about (laughs) well and i think that's why there's so much focus on this as well because that is often a thing that we use to differentiate between hominid ancestors as well right Mm -hmm. that has been part of so many arguments Mm -hmm. against like for the longest time that idea that Homer and Neanderthal and cis Neanderthals were just these big brutes that just ran into walls and used their club (laughs) more than their brains. A lot of that was dispelled when they found the burial with the flowers and the ochre. Yeah, that sort of thing. And then also like pictographs and 
yes, symbols that were associated with Neanderthals. And yeah, that so often comes into this discussion of like the symbolism and abstract thinking. It is often thought of to be as like a uniquely human thing. I mean, what's interesting is the Neanderthals didn't really even disappear because a lot of the modern population has Neanderthal genetics. They live on! So, (laughs) does that mean that they, like, couldn't speak and then, I don't know, the the humans could? Yeah. It's hard to say. Luke and I went into this huge, very much an aside, but Luke and I went into this, like, huge debate last night about if neanderthals for example had like continued to live without interbreeding would we see them in like any other hominid like homo florensiensis the one that was found yeah like they're not that long ago and they found them oh no that was a that was wrong they ended up my undergrad like one of my teachers my undergrad discovered homo fresiensis and he really messed up the stratigraphy they are not as recent oh, as did he? was published yeah it oh. said they were like lived till like 10,000 years ago no it was like the cave deposits there was like a huge discontinuity in the stratigraphy of the sedimentation in the cave and basically it's like they're 60 to 70,000 years older than previously thought so they were not as recent as we thought like they they do fit in with oh. our hominid evolutionary ideas yeah. Well, and that's just an example of how one thing can be thrown into the media and yeah, sensationalized quite the... a bit before the science has been peer reviewed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, and kept in the public viewpoint as well. But that's a good clarification. That's sad. Yeah, sorry, but <laughs> to be the bear no, 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 it's <laughs> fine. No, it, no, but it is fine. It's totally fine. But say, like for example, Homo floresiensis, Homo neanderthalensis. If they had continued to live along with Homo sapiens and no interbreeding between them, like would we see them like elves and dwarves and that sort of thing, <laughs> and. The argument that I said to, if we had continued to live, like, no, we would see them more like we see chimps. I feel like, yeah, we would have enslaved them and created, like, a subspecies of human and treated them like, I think it'd be like Planet of the Apes, where we would have them as, like, slaves doing all our dirty work and stuff. Yeah. Or they or, or they, they would did just it to be... us. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Or they would just be a completely different species that we wouldn't even see as being similar to us, right? But if they could speak, would then we would interact. Exactly. With them. If they could speak, that would be so interesting. But we can interact. Also, we, can in- <laughs> we can interact with gorillas, right? Like Coco the gorilla was pretty much like we were able to communicate using ASL with Coco, right? Like we can yeah. cross that species language communication barrier, but does that change our perspective of those species? That's yeah. to be debated. Well, and I think it does, because that's the thing, is, like, we just tend to have this very anthropocentric view. Anthropocentric, again, meaning... Human-centered. Like, thinking... Yeah, focus, focus on, on humans, humans, human-centered, thinking humans are better. This anthropocentric view of even... We have these very meaningful relationships with, you know, cats and dogs, but we don't see them as the same as us, and we don't see them as being as smart as us a lot of the time. Like, we just have this very interesting view about intelligence and what communication means and Anyway, who knows? Who knows? Let's I find somebody. Never mind. Let's not do weird, morally ambiguous research projects. On people. <laughs> yeah. Let's wrap this up here. <laughs> <laughs> you can... Also, I just realized we we haven't talked about what our next episode is going to be. What are we going to do our next episode? How will we do sort of a continuation of this one? And then we'll talk about, mm-hmm. and Kelsey might unfortunately not be with us. <laughs> 
That sounded so much darker. Might not be <laughs> recording with us <laughs> because she's out at the cabin. Lucky her. Uh, but we'll talk about the Rosetta Stone, and I'll quickly talk as well about the deciphering of the Indus script uh, because that's really cool as well. But yeah, mm-hmm. cool, sick. I think Love so. It. That was probably not helpful if you wanted a def- definitive answer about <laughs> how language evolved. <laughs> we don't have one. It's, we, Nobody knows. Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much up for debate, but it is a very interesting debate and one that I like talking about. So hit us up with all of your questions. (laughs) I all this free time I have, I'll just be sitting here figuring out how language happened. Um, (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, Yeah, but if you do have any questions or comments or or different poo-poo hypotheses, was that what it was called? Yeah. Cockatoo hypothesis. Like, what what is that? Yeah. What? The ding-dong cockatoo and poo-poo hypotheses. We want to hear them. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Anyway, if you have any of those hypotheses, hit us up. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um... All of the references and links, and I think there's going to be a lot of sort of like side trajectory and interesting videos and stuff. So any of that will be posted on our website or in the description mm-hmm. for this episode, depending on what you're listening to it on. And then you can, yes, visit our website at pertaining to people.com. Send us emails to pertaining to people at gmail.com. Check out our Instagram and our Twitter, which are Instagram is at pertaining to people. Twitter is at p2peoplepod, p2pplpod, at p2peoplepod. <laughs> and yeah, we hope to hear from you. And we look forward to talking about the Rosetta Stone, baby. Woo-hoo. See you next Thanks time. Thanks for listening. Bye.